Hi, I'm Catherine. And I'm Gail. And we are so delighted today to bring to you Dr. Sho Joanne Schwartzberg, who's been working in the field of health literacy and clinician patient communication since 1997. Joanne comes to us from another guest advocate, who is Cheryl Woodson. Joanne is a clinical assistant professor of preventive medicine and community health at the University of Illinois, Chicago's College of Medicine, and an adjunct assistant professor in general internal medicine and geriatrics at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. Dr. Schwartzberg is also past president of the Institute of Medicine of Chicago, the Illinois Geriatric Society, and the American Academy of Home Care Physicians. From the start of her career as a founder of the first multidisciplinary not-for-profit home health agency in the Midwest, to her 22 years as director of aging and community health at the AMA, to her current work at ACGME, Joanne, we'll let you explain that in a moment, with surveys researching residents' experiences during their training, listening to their voices, describing good and poor educational experiences, belittlement and abuse, exhaustion and depression, supportive programs and faculty, Dr. Schwartzberg has successfully advocated for and created programs to improve the quality of healthcare for older Americans. Since 2014, Dr. Schwartzberg has served as ACGME's alternative representative to the IOM Global Forum on Innovation in Health Professional Education. And this introduction barely covers your celebrated career, Joanne. <laughs> We're so glad to have you. And uh, may I call you Joanne? <laughs> okay, so welcome to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. And uh, you're going to have to explain a lot of those letters to us, but what attracted you to geriatrics in the first place? Okay, and, and geriatrics wasn't even a specialty field, you know, when I graduated from medical school and got involved in this, but Everybody that I know that's gone into geriatric fields, medicine, nursing, physical therapy, social work, whatever, mm -hmm. they are all people who've had wonderful relationships with their grandparents mm -hmm. and have loved older people. And that's a, uh, okay, this is true for all of us in geriatrics, at least really? the way we started with. And then in medicine, um, you know, you go into medicine because you really want to understand how to, what's going on and how to fix it, right? Mm -hmm. What's happening here? Mm -hmm. That's your diagnostic approach to everything. This is a detective story. And the greatest detective challenges are in geriatrics. <laughs> there are people with multiple chronic illnesses that present in unusual ways and they're on a bunch of medications and they come in with a new problem. And is it related to any of the ones you've identified so far? Mm. Or is it related to any of the medicines they're on? Or is it really a new problem, right? These mm. are the greatest challenges, wow. electoral challenges you can have. Mm. So that's what interests you, right? You're drawn into this field. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, go ahead. So anyway, I, I've had a blessed life in medicine for many years. Yeah. And so that's, uh, and been in positions to see new programs 
at the very start as the ideas begin to unfold and in a position where I have some little influence on where they're going and then watching them grow and far beyond what anybody could have imagined might have come out of this. So mm-hmm. it's exciting life. Mm-hmm. You, um, you talk a lot about health literacy, I know. Mm-hmm. T- tell us what that means exactly. Well, the way we did, uh, okay, tell the whole story. Uh, <laughs> so I, I was at the American Medical Association. Staff were sitting around in the conference room uh, sipping coffee. And the, my boss came in and said, well, he's just gotten an invitation from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation that they want uh, AMA to send a representative. They're getting a small group of people together to listen to this new research that they've just sponsored that they're very excited about. He looks around the room and, well, you're busy. Well, Joanne, you don't have anything on your calendar. You go. So I went and I came back and said, this is more important than anything we're working on. <laughs> we have to do something. Uh, this says what they've found is that people who have difficulty reading, uh, who don't understand what they're reading, they don't understand math, have much worse health outcomes. This is 1997. Uh, and the research showed in a variety of fields. Nobody was yet talking about social determinants of health or any of that. It was way out strange. And he was very reluctant to get into it. And I said, well, go talk to the chair of the Council on Scientific Affairs for the American Medical Association. And she says it's okay because it's so different from anything we're doing. So I went and talked to Dr. Nelson. She was, uh, Nelson, she was in, at the office at that point. And she frowned at me. Is there any science in this, Joanne? <laughs> I said, yes, there was. I just met these 13 researchers and they were really devoted to this. I'm working really very hard on it. So she says, okay, write a report. So I go back up to the office and I call all the researchers and I say, I haven't got any money to bring people together to talk about this, but we can talk, we can have conference calls and we can share drafts through the internet. And we need to write a white paper. This is a whole new field. What do we know about it? What have we learned from research so far? What are the research questions for the future? What could an organization like AMA do? Or what could the government do, right? Mm-hmm. Lay it all out. And they'll read it. And they did. And they adopted it. And part of the uh, debate was, what do you call it? Okay. The official titles at that point that had been used were poor liters limited literacy and poor health outcomes. Okay. Can't quite get your tongue around that. <laughs> Somebody had suggested health literacy. And of course it was catchy. Yes. And then people lots of people were absolutely opposed to it because what in the world did it mean? Right? So we defined it. We said it meant the ability to read, understand, and act on the information that you got. Can you apply it? It's not just the reading of it. Can, can you actually apply it to everyday life situations? Um, and that became the report for the council. Uh, and we, the first uh, recommendation was that limited literacy is a barrier to diagnosis and treatment, which puts it right in the lap of the doctors. Mm-hmm. It was just a barrier to access to care whether you could read your insurance things and other understood it, that was one thing, right? But if it's a barrier to diagnosis and treatment, it's our problem. You can do something about it. Mm-hmm. And the rest of the recommendations were how do we go on to work with the government, work with educational programs, things like that. 
Um, and so that was 97. One of the first things was to get it into the public health goals of the country and healthy people 2010. Every 10 years, we set goals for, in public health. And so part of that was uh, working with the Office of Disease Prevention and Health Promotion in Washington. Mm -hmm. um, what kind of research did they need? It was a kind of a provisional element. We, came, we got the research done through work with the Department on Education, uh, the National Adult Literacy Survey, and then they got some data they could work with. This was now broadening out. Uh, we did educational programs. We developed curriculum uh, for physicians, videotape, which is still on YouTube and started to train physicians from different medical societies. Uh, so we had a little grant and we could pay for their coming and putting on two programs. They needed to have a multidisciplinary group coming, doctors and nurses and others locally that would train and be ready to do the programs. And eventually uh, by 2007, we had like 38 teams around the country in different states, different groups, uh, training on health literacy. And there were state programs in health literacy. And there were, you know, it just began to boom and, and grow as to what was happening. It got redefined um, as the National Library of Medicine gave it a much fancier title and uh, or description ability to obtain process, I'm not going to remember all the words, but to make decisions because they were really concerned about informed consent issues if you didn't understand. But it's more than making decisions, it's actually being able to carry out to function successfully as a patient on the information that you've learned, right? And how do you do that? Uh, it, by the way, the um, latest public health goals for the next 10 years, Healthy People 2030, that just got, uh, has redefined it again. Um, and so health literacy now is both personal issues and institutional. Okay. The personal is to find, understand, and use information. Mm -hmm. And the institutional goes, so what are the institutional responsibilities to provide communication that people can understand? Uh, but the other thing that they do is uh, the overall goals, the theme for the next 10 years, according to the government, is to eliminate health disparities, achieve health equity, and attain health literacy. Mm. And they put the three together. That's good. So right? here from a little idea, even did we have it, right? What has happened in what's 30 years, right. watching it grow into you know, so there are educational programs all over the country, far beyond what we've done. There, uh, states have health literacy programs. Um, one of the pieces, you know, the debate was it's poor literacy, poor understanding. But it turns out, was people's adequate education, college educated, make mistakes too. How does this? How does this apply to uh, older people? And older, older women. people have more problems, right? Because, okay, um, many of them don't have as much education, and uh, particularly, some of them don't even have high school education mm -hmm. still. Mm -hmm. 
um, their challenges and what they have to read and understand are phenomenal. <laughs> you know, if you're on eight different drugs, right? How do you, every hour of the day and night, how do you keep it straight? How do you remember what's happening? Um, can you even read the prescription label? Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, there's research done on uh, five simple labels, mm -hmm. right? Take one tablet once a day, take one teaspoon three times a day. That was the most mm -hmm. complicated, maybe. 40% um, or more made a mistake on one out of five labels. Mm. You want to think about patient safety issues and problems. Right. Most common mistake, take two tablets twice daily. Okay. <laughs> so you say, okay, so how many tablets do you take during the day? And they say two instead of four. Four, right. right. Something about the word twice makes people think time of day, not doubling the dose. Mm. Okay. I can see That's that. a simple one syllable word, right? We learned to read in second grade. But when you apply it to something that you have to relate it to medicine, how, do, how does it work, right? Right. So 50% of people who are reading below fifth grade level make that mistake. But 20% of people who are reading above 10th grade level, many with college education, 20% make that mistake. Mm. <laughs> so we have to rethink. It's not a question <laughs> of just poor reading skills. It's more than that. And that's why we talk about the mutual understanding that you have to do a teach back. You have to say, okay, tell me in your own words how you're going to do this when you get home. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Tell me what you're going to tell your spouse about what we talked about, what our plan is. How are you going to make it work mm -hmm. and make sure that somebody really understands in their own language, in their own way, what they're going to be doing? I think that the only way to know. pharmacists, instead of saying, do you need to know anything, should say, how are you going to take this medicine? How right. frequently? How are you going to take it? Mm -hmm. Yes. Tell, yeah. And. What they do is they offer you, do you want the, and do you want to discuss it, mm -hmm. right? And they're mm -hmm. busy. Right. Um, but yes, we probably should be discussing it. Uh, Wisconsin Health Literacy, there's a, uh, many states have health literacy programs now going on. You know, they told you this whole thing is boom. Uh, and they are particularly looking at prescription labels and what could be done to make them more understandable. Mm -hmm. For instance, okay, you don't understand two tablets twice daily. If you wrote, take two tablets in the morning and two in the evening, everybody gets it. No problem. Right? There's not enough room on the little label <laughs> to write all of that. So how do we decide what needs to be on, what size, what people can read? Uh, so they have a research project that's gone on for several years and is continuing with about, I think, 160 different pharmacies around the state, not CVS or Walgreens, but little pharmacies, you know, small chains, four, five, 10 pharmacies. And they're all looking at how, how their patients coming in, are reading, understanding the labels, what they can do with them, et cetera. So just another piece of, of this is a problem. And it's just, we need to recognize that mutual understanding is what Mm -hmm. really all healthcare is about. So Joanne, I have a 
question for you. We've, yeah. we've mentioned preventive medicine, mm-hmm. um, the health literacy, the disparities, elderly, caring for the elderly. Can you put aging women in the center of that? And, and are there any particular issues, conditions, things that would that really stand out for you in terms of uh, care for women, old, aging women? It's a good question. Uh, and of course, one of the, the things is women live longer than men, right? Mm-hmm. And so how do we how do we think about that whole uh, extension of life, right? And widowhood and isolation and separate. What, what do we provide for that? And how does our community provide for that? And I think it's a really important piece um, that maybe we don't talk enough about. Well, I'm just I'm wondering also about, I've heard, I don't know if it's correct, that, um, Gerontology or geriatrics is not the uh, a real sought after field <laughs> that people <laughs> go into, and yet we have this growing aging population. Is right. that is that true? And and what's being done to bring geriatrics into the whole medical training and um, to make that more visible? Okay, it's a lot of problems. The main reason. Uh, actually that it has been a less sought after field is it's economically not a, a ration. You can't keep an office open just seeing geriatric just patients. So, so 20 years ago, maybe only needed 20% of um, patients on, on regular insurance to, and the rest on Medicare and you could keep an office open. Now it's more than 50% non-geriatric paid for in order to pay because Medicare does not pay real costs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's the, uh, so until that is corrected in some way, it makes it very hard for uh, graduates in internal medicine or family medicine who may want this or another field um, because it's, you know, they have tremendous debt. They have yeah. an average $250,000 worth of debt when you finish training. And you're never going to pay it off if you go into geriatrics. And you have enough trouble in primary care. So until there's some recognition and waiver of these debts, if you're going into this field, right, to encourage people to do this, uh, it's it's a hard sell. So even though people love it and they recognize it, um, it's, it's a hard sell. Are, are we relying on internists to general practitioners to take up this this subject matter and and uh, work with old, their older patients? Yeah, you need all the specialists too, don't you? Yes, you do. Yeah. And so, do we train them in medical school? Do we train them in residency early, which mm-hmm. obviously I'm an advocate for? Mm-hmm. Um, but how much time do we get? Uh, in internal medicine, I think they do one month rotation in geriatrics out of their three years. You have a tremendous amount of, not, of work you have to learn, and knowledge you have to learn, but we haven't really got a proper proportion yet. So what does it bode for us then, Joanne, in terms of women who are postmenopausal, who are over 70, um, what, do, what do we need to do 
I mean, it seems that maybe health literacy is also part of really developing our own advocacy voice that we need to be ready to say, this is what we need and this is how we want to be treated. Yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And (laughs) yes, yes. Uh, And learn as much as we can about what kind of care and what kind of care makes sense. We're in a period of time post or current COVID and will be post COVID when the world is changing drastically in healthcare and what we're able to do and uh, what we've patched in with telehealth and with other things Mm -hmm. and a great deal of increase in home care. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so we have new now acute hospital at home, right? Which Medicare is paying for so that patients won't be in the hospital. hospital Beds will be filled with COVID and all of the hospital services are being provided. I think there are more than a hundred hospitals that have organized hospital at home for patients. Uh, And that's only since November. (laughs) So you will get more of them. Uh, So I think there will be more, one of the things about home care, and you know, that's my love, uh, is it's individualized Mm -hmm. in in ways that care in an office and certainly care in a hospital are not that individualized. Mm -hmm. You see the patient in the home, you see what they need, you understand them far better. They understand you far better. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I think we're going to find much more care delivered that really meets people's needs. Mm -hmm. And I think that's gonna meet all older people's needs, but particularly we'll look at for older women who are, uh, I think they'll be able to speak more easily with the patients who are coming Mm -hmm. with the services that are coming in, help organize them keep independent, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, it's very important. Mm-hmm. So when you say home health care, the, the medical professionals are coming to the person's home. <coughs> right. When, All, every, everybody coming. So, so when I grew up, Doc Smith would come and visit us at, at home. Right. right. Is that a, the modern version of, of that? That's a, a modern version of that. Yes. So, uh, so the other field I was involved in, okay. Uh, so when I first started practice, um, four very idealistic characters, right? My husband did the legal work. I did the, the medical policy. So it's up. The other couple had business and office management experience. And we started the very first nonprofit multidisciplinary home health agency in the Midwest here, 1972. And I waited a a month before anybody would dare give us a patient. They were so scared about sending these patients out of the hospital. And up until that time, you had visiting nurse association, which was primary nursing. The nursing did everything for everybody. And I was very interested in rehabilitation, physical therapy, getting people independent at home, working with people with disabilities, right? And getting them active. Um, Anyway, it became the model, right? And all over the country, the sort of uh, the multidisciplinary model is the one. Uh, when we started, probably half of our patients had physicians who would still see them at home. They'd stop after church on Sunday, mm-hmm. right? And they knew these patients, they knew the families for years, right? And they knew they couldn't get out. Once home health really started, the physicians pulled back from it. 
And then when I got to the AMA, part of the reason I got there was now we were, had much shorter hospital stays with prospective payment for DRGs. And suddenly these patients were being sent out into the home. What was really there and how is it going to be uh, managed? Um, so that was how I was on committees and things for the AMA. And then I got there full time. Um, and one of the things was getting payment for physicians to make house call. And then we developed the Academy of uh, Home Care Physicians, which is now the Academy of Home Care Medicine. Uh, and because you not only need the nurses, you need the physicians. Right. Physicians also need to see what's happening in the home. As one doctor years ago said to me, um, you know, in three minutes in the home, I know more than three office visits mm -hmm. about what's really going on and what's really important for this patient. Uh, that's something that, you know, you, it's very hard to translate that into uh, a checklist <laughs> or a series of questions or something right. else. The, the knowledge that you have of the human being, how, mm -hmm. how they're coping with their whole situation, what it really makes, what a difference it makes. At the same time, you're a guest in the home as the healthcare provider, you're the nurse or the physician. And so you're, the patient is much more open to talking mm. and sharing information. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's a much healthier relationship on both sides. And what you gain from that is, is just tremendous. So yes, at this point, we have physicians going out. We have... Uh, all services and uh, many of services can be um, miniaturized. So you can do all kinds of EKGs and all kinds of cardiac studies and ultrasound. And you can do ISTAT labs, which you can get 15, the results in 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. If you've got a lot of this going, it could be really threatening to hospitals. Mm -hmm. There may come a time when a lot more care is in people's homes and not in, in the institution, it's really just the acute care, surgery, surgery ICU, that piece of it. That may be a future, I don't know. Is that your vision for the future? I don't think it'll quite get there. I think the hospitals are pretty strong uh, and they will continue to exist in the way they are. But I, my vision of the future is we should have much more home care, yes. And for all ages, I, there is many people under 65 who are disabled and really homebound as there are over 65. And we kind of forget about them. If they're uh, on Medicaid, they may get home care services. They may not. If they have private insurance, it depends. Uh, but they don't have really comprehensive care. And my vision would be that you would have the care that you need, whatever that is, mm -hmm. should be able to be delivered at home and actually can be. It's all it's just a question of creating the structure and the system to do it, right? Mm -hmm. Do you envision telehealth becoming a bigger part of the home care? Right, thing? of course. Yeah, and, and I think for all of our care at this point, we've all learned a lot about it. It's um, whether you're going to be able to develop all of your relationships via telehealth, via Zoom, like we're talking Zoom-wise, right? Uh, or whether you need to have some hands-on, closer relationships, right? How do, how do you convey, well, it depends. You can learn a lot of 
conveying your emotions, your empathy, your interest, and listening to people. You can do a lot over uh, telehealth, over Zoom, over virtual. But there's some pieces you didn't need hands-on, right? Including just a hug <laughs> sometimes. Sometimes. And a lot of times that's what's important in, in many situations is that physical, the physical contact. That compassion. And that compassion, that's right. It's uh, you can't quite get that, you know. No, you can't on a uh, two-dimensional world, <laughs> a not real world. And we've been talking about how do you develop digital touch, right? Mm-hmm. So that people feel that in touch with them over the telehealth. Um, but it's I I think the in person is, is is going to continue to need to be. Yeah. Well, I was struck by what you said about three minutes in someone's home. You can learn more than three vis- house or visit you know, in in, um, in visits in the hospital. You're seeing that person in their whole context, their whole right. living space, and 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 as you said, you are the guest, and so um, it's kind of more of a neutral, isn't it? More of a neutral playing field in that way. Yes. Yeah, it's so interesting. Yes, and so you are open and your patients who are visiting are, you know, welcoming you as a guest, which means welcoming in a broader sense. Yeah. And you get a sense of who they are and what matters to them, what's important, right? And how how they've organized their lives. Uh, you know, and, and some of it gets down to how even have they structured it to handle their healthcare problems. Mm-hmm. You know, why do you see the pill bottles all over the house, mm-hmm. right? right? Well, actually, if you ask, there's a good reason for it. Instead of saying, oh, they're all mixed up and they don't know what they're doing, right? No. Well, well because these are the medicines I take in the morning. Mm-hmm. And these medicines that are next to the chair I sit in when I watch the evening news <laughs> and these are the ones by the bed, which I'm going to take at night, right? Perfectly logical way of organizing your world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Joanne, you, you talk about ACGME. Okay. Right. So, we have left. I know that's very important to you. Tell, tell us a little bit about that. Well, one of the things is I'm still working. Right. At 87. And I, I'm blessed to be able to do that. So I was 79 when I was invited to come and join ACGME as a scholar in residence. Wow. Okay. And they have six, eventually six scholars in residence. And, right. We're people who've been out doing lots of things like me in different areas that they've mm-hmm. brought in to help um, with research, with looking more broadly at where medical education, graduate medical education is, needs to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a wonderful organization. It's an organization, the Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education. So they set the standards for all of the residency programs all across mm-hmm. the country. Right. 11,000 programs is more mm-hmm. than that, um, among other things. And the, they're, anyway. Uh, but so the research group that we're involved in is looking at a variety of things, interprofessional teamwork kinds of issues in the beginning, but a lot of uh, surveys, we have like five years of surveys of residents in terms of their experiences um, 
looking at how, the quality of the programs, um, looking at fatigue, looking at engagement, looking at uh, depression. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the most important questions is, do you have enough time to think and reflect? Mm -hmm. Probably if there was any question that indicated that the learning environment was adequate, right? Yeah. Was enough time to think and reflect. The other is, do you have enough time to do the work? Right? <laughs> and if you don't have enough time, you really have a bad program. <laughs> and various ways, what kinds of um, experiences have you seen on professional treatment? Have you been treated badly? Uh, abuse, harassment, kinds of sexism issues. Um, a whole bunch of questions, right? We, uh, and then we have a, a place where they can uh, just write any comments they want. So looking at what, but when we first started at the first comments uh, were, we have children at home. That's why we fatigue, right? Mm -hmm. Not the program, just, you're right. Mm -hmm. So we hadn't thought about that. So we added in the demographic information, you know, age and gender and all special care and the rest of it. We add, you have children at home, is anybody pregnant? Uh -huh. And discovered it's about 27% have children at home and it increases from the first year. So by the time they're close to 40 and, and fellowships and other things you're talking about, maybe 60%. Uh, and it's not something that the educators think about, what kind of time demands and other things need to be, or that you need parental leave. <laughs> you know, there are a whole bunch of questions. Here are people who are working 80 hours a week for you, plus extra time, and what else are their lives like? Mm -hmm. uh, but whereas we thought, because of all of the comments that... Uh, these would be people in more trouble. And they're certainly getting, for the women, much more abuse and harassment. Um, but generally, they're less depressed, less fatigued, have more time to think and reflect, have enough time to do the work. They are doing better than the residents who don't have children. Mm. Well, something about the family, the child, the support that you have from that, the emotional support, makes a tremendous difference. Wow. Interesting. I'm a little surprised. Me too. Everybody's surprised when we tell them. <laughs> it's like, how can that be? Okay. So you are 87. Right. And 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 so why are you still working? Clearly you love what you do. It it's keeping you down <laughs> and involved and engaged right. and very inspiring. Well, from your so what from your perspective, why why do you keep working? Because I love it. And because I seem to still be able to be useful and helpful sure. in this work that I'm doing. You know, it's a, uh, I, I told you I've been blessed in, in a career in medicine. I think I told you, if we have enough time, I don't know. When? That I, when you asked me this before <laughs> about it, and I started to think about why am I doing this? <laughs> uh, I remembered back to when I got into medicine. And I was interviewing at all the medical schools. So this is a long, long time ago. Mm -hmm. And the only question that they asked a woman was, why should we accept a woman when there's a man equally qualified who we know is probably going to practice in medicine? And you're probably going to get married and pregnant and drop out. And of course, that's the only question they ever asked mm. in any of the universities. Um, 
I didn't know how am I going to answer this right in the beginning. I said, first, I'm going to practice that. Um, and then I went to one school. I won't describe which one, but it was a very um, prestigious school. Mm-hmm. And it was the kind of school when they took you around and showed you on every door of every classroom, they'd have the paper with every all the students' names and their grades from the weekly exam, mm-hmm. right? So you could see how you were doing. Talk about a competitive environment. Yes. <laughs> I looked at this. No way did I want to get involved in this, right? So when it got to the interview, you know, I was feeling kind of brazen, <laughs> I guess. Mm-hmm. And I said, when I said, why should we accept a woman? Uh, I said, well, women live six or seven years longer than men. And if I take out the time with my children are little, I'll make it up at the end of my life. <laughs> and when you talk to me about this, I was thinking, you know, somewhere in my mind is still this. <laughs> <laughs> that's, you, that's how you're thinking about it. <laughs> I thought about it. Plan- it didn't think it was planned in any way. And as I say, it's really where the opportunities were, and you know, that I can still do this kind of work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm still in good health. So, right. Um <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah. so that's by the way, that's what I said to them. I went home over the weekend, got back to college, and I had an acceptance that in the mail that day. Mm-hmm. Being, uh, of course, I didn't go there, mm-hmm. but uh, it's just the whole what happens to women in medicine. Um, it's changed now. You're talking about 50% of the schools mm-hmm. now. The students are, are women and increasing in the faculty, increasing in the, all, of the, um, mm-hmm. all of the positions going up. So it's very exciting, very different from what's happened. Um, so another thing that I've been able to watch, right? <laughs> right, right. So, uh, Catherine, anything else you want to ask? I have many questions. I, I, I... Um, this may take us in a slightly different area, but I'm wondering, given given the home health care and the, the attention to working with the, the patients with compassion in their own setting, um, have you been involved with um, sort of more integrative approaches? Some some bringing in some alternative health approaches to to helping patients, or is it all kind of conventional me- medicine? I have not personally been involved with, I, uh, yes, it's multidisciplinary, but I haven't been involved with an naturopathic mm-hmm. alternative. Okay. That mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, interested in them, but I have not. It's another, another avenue for you. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm still, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But yes, it's another avenue to, to yeah. look at. Yeah. I just... Uh, I'm not ready to say much more. Than that. Sure, that's that's fine. I'm I'm I just um, the, the I'm just so immersed in what you've been talking about and the the range of work that you have done and continue to do, and I can just see how it touches for me women's lives uh, immeasurably, and so I that's what I'm hoping our listeners will take away is is um, how inclusive this, all of the work that you're doing is of, of women. Yes, it's, it's uh, 
Well, and you know, traditionally healthcare, who provides the healthcare? It's women, right? Mm -hmm. Women in the home who do it for their families, who does the nursing, who provides the caregiving. If you look at, you want to talk about what older women are doing in home caring for much older parents or older spouses or children who have disabilities who are now adults and still need care. Mm -hmm. Being a caregiver is in our genes, right? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So how can we design a better program so we can do, we can have the support we need, right? Mm -hmm. I suppose many of the things that I've been involved in, I've always felt that in medicine, my job was as patient advocate. Right. That's um, but that's a large part of it. How do you create an environment where patients can flourish? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what you're saying is how do you create an environment where women can older women can flourish, right? Mm-hmm. And what do we need? I think we need to enjoy what we're doing, <laughs> right? And feel that we're making a contribution to the world. Mm-hmm. What a wonderful note to stop on. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Joanne. We appreciate it. Well, thank you. It, it's been such fun toy. I don't normally get a chance to talk about any of this stuff. <laughs> so it really was a delight. And I thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you. You're very welcome.